Um, so we're going to start where we left off last week, and I was going to, um, I had some questions after the class that I was going to address a little bit just to clarify things so I don't confuse people. Um, this is the original um, slide I started with last week. Today we're going to start with the in induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, but before I went on, I had some questions about um, adult somatic stem cells, so let me clarify this. So, uh, like I said, the most common tissue that's been studied for adult somatic stem cells is bone marrow. But I can say this will, um, this is applicable to pretty much all tissues, I would say, just not as well studied. But for example, probably in the liver, in the neural system, everything. But so within a tissue, in this case specifically the bone marrow, there's hematopoietic stem cells, which we talked about last week, the key point being they can self-renew and that they can differentiate into all different types of functioning blood cells. Um, and then there's also another kind of cells, which are called stromal cells, also called mesenchymal stem cells or called skeletal stem cells. So these cells are also present in all tissues. Um, these are non-hematopoietic stem cells and make up the stromal cell population. These cells can generate all kinds of cells as well. They can make bone, cartilage, fat cells. Um, I believe they can differentiate into endothelial cells as well. Um, fibrous connect connective tissue. This really is what we refer to as the microenvironment, um, kind of like the nurturing supporting cells. It may be that um, in the next lecture or so that Dr. Provaco also talks about this because I know he's going to talk about like stem cell extracellular matrix interaction, so he may touch on that. But this is really like a whole huge area in and of itself, so really beyond what I'm talking about. Um, it is true if you, these cells are also being used for a lot of therapies and experimental therapies as well. So um, they have like trophic uh, characteristics, just like these do sometimes in some of the studies I talked about last week. They have, these also have like immune modulatory characteristics, so sometimes they're used in graft-versus-host disease. Um, I believe they're being tested a lot for um, like bone fractures, for example, because it can help the bone repair itself and renew. Um, and also, I even saw some papers I thought was pretty interesting. Um, they're also being used for like fibrotic liver disease, so like um, liver failure due to fibrosis. So these are also another population of stem cells, but I just wanted to clarify, this is different from what I was talking about last week. So this is a huge area. People that do this spend their whole life thinking about just these because they're so kind of unique and have their own characteristics. So I just wanted to clarify, um, this is really the adult stem cells I was talking about. So you may get more of this um, from other folks this year. Okay, so we're going to go on today though. We did talk about um, the adult or somatic stem cells, embryonic stem cells, and then we're getting ready to talk about the induced pluripotent stem cells. So if you'll remember last week, kind of where we ended up was that whereas the embryonic stem cells have a lot of potential value and a lot of um, potential applications, there's also a lot of ethical issues surrounding them, which we touched on. Um, and so 
part of the good news is that there are some other cells that have been generated just in the last decade that have some qualities of embryonic stem cells that can be generated without having to generate a whole blastocyst and destroying that blastocyst. So in some ways, this has a lot of the promise of the ES cells without as much of the ethical baggage that comes with the ES cells. So how do these work and how did this happen? So um, this is the gentleman who um, received the Nobel Prize in 2012 uh, for first publishing how these cells were generated. Um, and he um, published the manuscript in 2006 and already got the Nobel Prize in 2012. So this was a very robust finding that many people have been able to replicate and utilize. Um, so it was really um, an exciting development. And I've never met him before, but I know other people like Merv Yoder and people who do stem cell research have met him before. And actually, he's like a really cool guy, too. So that's nice, too. So um, what are induced pluripotent stem cells, and how are they different from embryonic stem cells? Um, probably like in genetics classes and things, you've uh, learned about or will learn about that not all nuclei are equal. So for example, even though nucleuses have the exact same genetic code, perhaps, um, a zygotic nucleus, so a nucleus that's just post-fertilization, has a lot more pluripotency in it or a lot more ability to become different kinds of cells than a nucleus from a somatic cell or like from a terminally differentiated cell. And that's because of epigenetic modifications. So even though like the DNA sequence might be identical, as you know, differences in epigenetics like DNA methylation and histone acetylation and all those really hard things that I don't know very much about. Um, it actually makes the gene expression different so that the nuclei are different. Um, and the cells have different potentials. So um, this is like the most pluripotent nucleus. It's like a post-fertilization um, egg, basically. And this is the least. So some uh, nucleus from a terminally differentiated cell, like a fibroblast, for example. And then the embryonic stem cell is somewhere in between. So the idea that um, Yamanaka had was that he could maybe take this kind of a nucleus and somehow reprogram it to be more like this kind of a nucleus. So that was his idea. And so, um, and this is just some pictures I pulled off from, uh, this is this company, Biotime, that um, is trying to develop stem cell therapies. It's a, it's a company, actually. And basically what the director of that company said, who's a, an expert in this area, says he says, ES cells are essentially kind of like just cultured germline cells, right? So. That's basically, this is a germline cell. ES cells are cultured as something you can get these to grow in culture. Um, and then uh, Yamanaka had the idea of, can I take these cells, which are somatic cells, terminally differentiated cells, and transcriptionally reprogram those to become more like an ES cell or a germline cell? So that was the whole concept. So what they did, so this was... This is straight from the manuscript that was published in 2006. So this is kind of like classic literature now. Um, what, they had the idea that they were going to test different candidate genes. Um, and they had a system they set up where they, they used a promoter 
called FBX15, and they put into that gene locus a neomycin resistance gene. So what they had the idea of, if we put different candidates into these cells, so this represents a terminally differentiated cell, and then if the um, cells become resistant to the neomycin, which would mean that this promoter was active, then these should represent pluripotent cells. And the reason they, they hypothesized that or used that system um, was because what they knew was that this gene product, FBX, FBX15, is, is expressed in ES cells, but actually the protein itself is not needed for pluripotency. So they could, what they, they knew that like its expression is a marker or kind of goes along with pluripotency, but is not needed for pluripotency. So they could like knock out its gene product by putting in a neomycin resistance gene and just say, okay, if this promoter's active, we know it should be a pluripotent cell. So they, they started with 24 candidate genes. I don't really know how they got to this list of 24 genes. There was probably a huge amount of work involved in that. But they started with 24 candidate genes. And then they just did um, like different permutations, basically, and putting in different combinations until they got cells that were uh, neomycin resistant and then also had um, qualities of embryonic stem cells. Um, and this is just a picture, like the first pass, they could take these basically fibroblasts, these were mouse fibroblasts they started with originally, um, they transfected it with 24 cDNAs, or transduced it, sorry, they were using retroviral transduction, and then they could see that uh, these were like little colonies, and that represented that the cells had become pluripotent and were resistant to neomycin. So they carried that forward, and at the end of the day, when they published their manu the original manuscript, they had identified four transcription factors that, when introduced into the somatic cells, or fibroblasts, basically, could render or could reprogram the cell to be pluripotent-like, or ESL-like. And the four transcription factors were OCT4, KLF4, SOX2, and MYC. So those are the, that was the cocktail that worked. So this is just a um, kind of like from a review article that they published a, a couple years later, again showing how they did this. They took skin fibroblasts from a mouse. They took um, embryonic fibroblasts from a, um, from a murine um, embryo. Either source, uh, they could take those fibroblasts. They could introduce these four transcription factors, select a neomycin, and then could find um, induced pluripotent stem cells or cells that had embryonic stem cell-like qualities. And, um, and, and that was their cell manuscript in 2006. So how does this relate back to embryonic stem cells? So um, just to remind everybody, um, the goal using embryonic stem cells would be that you could take genomic DNA from um, an afflicted individual sick with some kind of a disease and introduce that DNA into a, a human enucleated oocyte and then generate embryonic stem cells, generate the tissue of interest that you would need for this particular patient and then give the patient back the cells. So what is, and that's the somatic cell nuclear transfer that we spoke about last week. So what's different about this? Well, now we don't, um, so how do we do this induced pluripotent stem cells? 
Well, first of all, we don't need enucleated oocytes. So that really simplifies things because it's not easy to get oocytes, okay? Um, and th these are from women. So it's, it's like you have to give people drugs to, you know, have women ovulate more. And so for, this really simplifies things a lot. Um, now you don't need the DNA anymore. All you need now is a somatic cell. So theoretically, um, and, well, this has been done, so it's not really theoretically. You can take the patient's skin, skin cells, for example, so fibroblasts, and start with this cell. Then this cell is going to get cultured. So you have like basically a fibroblast culture. And then introduce um, these four transcription factors. And then now you have um, induced pluripotent stem cells that can be differentiated into the tissue of interest. In this case, we're using the model, again, as a retinal pigmented epithelium and then could be used to treat the patient. So that's really the beauty of this um, cell model, is that it really bisteps this whole idea of you have to generate a blastocyst, you have to, you know, it's hard, it's, it's hard ethically for many ways. It's hard because you have to find oocytes to use. Um, that's not easy to do. And, and then also you don't have to worry about this, oh, we generate a blastocyst and then we have to destroy the blastocyst, you know. Instead, um, this, this is at least ethically much better approach. So, um, and, and that's just what this shows here, that you can just go directly from the patient to these cells. So how, what, how far along is this in terms of clinical trials? So of all the cell types I talked about, I'm going in order of, of least applied, more, most applied to least applied. So obviously, hematopoietic stem cells are used in lots of treatments, right? Um, human embryonic stem cells aren't in a lot of treatments, but there's more clinical trials going on with those now compared to the induced pluripotent stem cells because these are, the, these are only nine years old. <laughs> these were only published nine years ago. So, um, but one trial that was going on and actually got put on hold, and this is where this stuff moves so fast. Like, this just happened, like, six months ago and was just published in English like on September 11th, like 10 days ago. So it's like always, <laughs> it's always getting updated really fast. But there was um, a clinical trial in Japan uh, where they were using, um, so they were, these were autologous. So just like, just like this picture, it was literally like this, that the patient would come in, they would generate cells from that patient. They were generating retinal um, pigmented epithelium and giving them back to the patient. And they had done one patient a year ago, and apparently the patient is fine and hadn't had any complications. But in the meantime, what happened was that um, there, there's been new regulatory activity in Japan where um, they had to actually put this on hold. And there's not a lot written in English on this. It's mostly in Japanese, and I don't, I don't read or speak Japanese, obviously. So I can't read a lot on it, but you can just see here it says, that, and this is what was just posted on September 11th, just like about 10 days ago. It says the, the enrollment of additional patients for this study um, was suspended in March of 2015 until further notice while collaborative research team assesses how to revise their proposed clinical study plan to comply with the new Act on the Safety of Regenerative Medicine. So this is a Japanese-specific issue. Um, and details of the new plan will be released once finalized. 
So I don't know a lot about this. What I can speculate, yeah. So, okay, well, I mean, what I can speculate is this issue that I talked about before, is that these are autologous. So if by chance um, these cells did become malignant for some reason and it had been injected into the patient, the patient's going to have a hard time fighting those off because it, it matches their immune system. So it's like it's great because it matches their immune system, so they aren't going to reject it. But if it becomes a cancer, it's not great anymore because it matches their immune system, so they can't fight it off. So, yeah. I don't think these were done with a retrovirus. They have like, and yeah, this is this is like the this is the kind of classic study. But since right. then, they've they've tried to use like non-integrating viruses and proteins and things like that to make it safer. Um, because you know, I mean, this was using retroviruses, so it works really great in a lab. But you don't want to, for the most part, you don't want to give retrovirally transfected or transduced cells to a patient. So. Um, but they've done a lot of that work over the last 10 years, in, or nine years, I guess. Um, and again, like that could almost be a whole course in itself. It's just, there's just tons of data out there on that. Uh, like how people have tried like different cocktails and like different ways. And, um, and so that's way beyond what we're talking about today. But th so they've tried to make it safer. But, um, and apparently the original patient didn't have a problem but maybe, I just, I can only speculate that maybe in Japan they were still like, well, we want to be really cautious about this. So um, right now this trial's on hold for, for autologous cells. Then, um, then there's then like goals for clinical trials. So this is really the only, I don't think there is any in the United States that, that I could find, um, but I could be wrong. Um, but this is the one I could find, uh, it was in Japan. Um, obviously, Yamanaka is Japanese, and he's doing all of his work in Japan. So, um, but his goal is to generate again um, this is more like off-the-shelf type cells. So, to generate iPS cells of all different HLA types, um, but that could be sitting there, so that, for example, if an individual has a spinal cord injury. Um, they could like pull those cells out of the freezer, grow them up, and within like 14 days, give them back to the patient to maybe, you know, like at the site of injury. Um, and again, like best time for the transplantation for this is like two to four weeks after the injury. If you start from scratch, this is at least a three to four month process. So, so that so that's not functional for like an acute injury type thing. I mean, it's great for like macular degeneration because that's chronic, but not for an acute. Um, and then, again, this kind of gets to your question. Their goal is to use clinical-grade integration-free human iPS cell lines to make it as safe as possible. So, so this is just a, like, kind of like a schematic. This is from a review that was just published last year um, by Yamanaka. So, like, what their kind of dream or whatever is to take cells from healthy people, um, somatic cells, to go ahead and reprogram them and generate like off-the-shelf non-autologous, so this would not be autologous, so they may have more kind of flexibility in getting their clinical trials going. I'm not sure, again, I, I can only guess. Um, uh, but off-the-shelf non-autologous iPS cells that are HAL matching for any, like many different kinds of recipients. And then another lab um, has the expertise of 
taking iPS cells and growing them into neuroprogenitors. Um, so they want to collaborate with this lab who's going to generate these neuroprogenitors. And then when individuals do have a spinal cord injury, they can give these um, neuroprogenitors back to the patient at their level of spinal cord injury. So this is their goal. It's not ongoing yet, but this is what they're aiming for. Um, and then just the question comes in, like, will this also be useful for autologous um, patient-specific administration? And I think uh, that question's still out there. Um, first of all, it does take time to make these, so that's going to limit some of the usefulness. And then, but the other thing is, if there is this still um, concern about potential malignancy, then that's going to be, they're going to have to deal with that uh, also, make this as safe as possible. And then this, this picture just shows that, um, that you can theoretically, you know, you can theoretically take these cells and, like, you can use them for drug testing or disease modeling. That's all great for research and stuff. You can also theoretically um, correct them if, they have, if they're genetically abnormal, and that's why the patient has the disease of origin. You could, like, genome edit them to correct the iPS cells and then give them back to the patient. So this is all theoretical. This, this is not really theoretical. This is good. Like, this is going to be ongoing. This part is still somewhat theoretical. That could probably happen. So that's iPS cells. So the benefits of the iPS cells, um, these can be either immunologically matched or personalized, or they can be also probably off-the-shelf HLA-matched source of transplantable cells. It's it's potential to repair their ge genetic abnormalities by homologous recombination. That's the old-fashioned way. Now it would be more the genome editing, which is like the CRISPR approach, which is now um, very feasible to use. Um, there's the potential to repeatedly differentiate the cells and give patients them back as needed, like maybe every three months or every six months. A patient comes in and gets the cells they need to you know, maintain function of their, of their spinal cord, for example. Um, and then these cells also sidestep the ethical issues involved in generating human ES cells, which also makes them a nice potential source. So what are the challenges? Um, nothing's ever perfect, so there's challenges also. So, and we spoke about this, you need, you know, try to bypass the use of oncogenes, for example, MYC, um, as part of, of the reprogramming factors. And that's where a lot of this over the last nine years, people have looked at so many different combinations and different ways to, uh, to give the cDNAs and different combinations of cDNAs and all that, trying to make it as safe as possible. Avoid the use of retroviral vectors as they carry the risk of insertional mutagenesis. And then also um, control leaky expression. So like when you want the things on, the reprogram, they're on. When you don't want them on anymore, you want them off because you need the cell to differentiate or whatever, turn them off. So you have to be able to control this, you know, potential leaky expression. So these are like the challenges or the goals that people um, are working on when using these cells. Okay, so that, that's really the end of the last lecture. So does anyone have any questions about that? And then we'll just go on. Okay. Okay. So, um, so what we're going to talk about today, so this is uh, really brand new stuff, even in the, in the science world, so in the science and medicine world. So this is 
kind of like hot off the press. Or what I'm going to the last part I'm going to show you was published in December. So, um, and it's going to be a big topic this year at our blood meeting. So, um, so I think this is really cutting edge, and you guys are going to hear a lot about these kinds of studies. Maybe not in AML, even though that's probably leading the way, just because it's so easy to get blood cells. That he, blood stuff always tends to lead the way, um, just because it's accessible tissue. But um, let's just first go over what is like myeloid differentiation. And this is um, obviously you start with hematopoietic stem cell and the bone marrow. So I try to separate these out, bone marrow and peripheral blood. Um, then there's progenitors in the bone marrow. This can, first of all, this can self-renew, like we talked about. That's a stem cell. It has to be able to self-renew. has to be able to make more of itself. Um, but it also has to be able to differentiate. So these would represent progenitors in the bone marrow. And um, for those of you who've rotated in any blood labs so far, um, these, these are just um, acronyms for different blood progenitors. It's like common myeloid progenitor or granulocyte macrophage progenitor. Um, so that's what that is. So these are immature, but they're starting to become like either neutrophils or monocytes. These continue to differentiate till you get these terminally differentiated cells that are out floating around in our blood doing their work, fighting off infection, helping us clot blood when we, you know, when we cut ourselves for platelets and things. So this is, this is normal, okay? Then what we know or what we've always speculated happens over the last 40 years or so is that occasionally a cell is going to get a mutation in it. And when that happens, it, uh, it can now self-renew. So it's not a stem cell anymore. It shouldn't be a stem cell, so it shouldn't be able to self-renew. But because of its mutation, now it also has the ability to self-renew. So this is not a good thing because now um, you're heading toward disease. It can also uh, differentiate. So it can also differentiate and continue to go out to these other cell types. And so finally what happens is you get too many of these self-renewing progenitors and you get too many of its progeny circulating in the blood. You don't get your terminally differentiated progeny anymore because uh, you have, this is kind of crowding out everything, and this is when um, an individual is going to basically present with acute myelocytic leukemia, okay? And, and like I said, traditionally, until like, I would say until like maybe in the last 10 years, everyone thought like, oh, one cell gets mutated and you get one cell that's growing too fast and therefore you get all of this, Okay. So traditionally, we, you would use like chemotherapy, right? And for the most part, you could get the patient looking pretty normal again. So this is like in remission. You're looking under the microscope, like their neutrophils look good again, or you know their monocytes look good, everything looks good. But what we know, or what we didn't know for sure, but what we speculated is that there was still these cells there with these mutations because it's so common for the patient to relapse, okay? So, um, so that, and that would be always where, where over the last 20, 30 years would be like, well, just use higher doses of chemotherapy. Just you give more, just pound the nail harder, right? Um, so the next goal would be myeloablative therapy. So this would lead into like, okay, we're just going to give such high doses of chemotherapy. We're going to kill every tumor cell, no matter what. And we're going to give, so that's myeloablative, everything's gone, 
right? Hopefully everything's gone. There's maybe some lonely stem cell hanging out here. And then you give back the patient stem cells from somebody else. So theoretically, like, this should really work, right? This should work. But unfortunately, even after all of this, it is really quite common. Well, the goal would be that the donor cells take over. These are normal cells, should be normal cells, and that you would get this nice, perfect remission. And this should work, but a lot of times it still didn't work. So really commonly, too commonly, patients would end up like this again, even after getting, like, really beaten up, you know, really hammered, like just tons of chemotherapy, but yet, unfortunately, would still relapse with disease. So, so this has been going on, like, for 40 years, like since the 70s. People kind of found out, like, oh, these drugs work sometimes, but it was unfortunately really common for this to happen to relapse. And then what happened about five years ago with all this whole genome sequencing and whole, whole exome sequencing that became available, it became obvious that most of the time in acute myeloid leukemias, there wasn't just one mutation, as I showed before, but there was usually three to five mutations. So this was a very different disease. It wasn't just the easy, like, oh, one mutation hits a cell and it grows too fast and da-da-da-da-da-da. It was much more complex than that. So when people realized this, then, and they knew that no matter what, that there was such common relapse. So they developed a new hypothesis, and this is what has come into, has now been published in the last, I would say, 24 months, um, that perhaps there was a pre-leukemia stem cell, not just a leukemia stem cell here, um, but even something before a leukemia stem cell that was not getting eradicated by the chemotherapy. And that's, I try to represent that here by um, a stem cell. It's not leukemic yet. It doesn't have all the mutations, but it has like two of these kind of smoldering mutations there. So this became the new hypothesis. So um, when thinking about this, so the group that did this, they, they thought about this, and they said, they said, wow, they, they said, you know, we know that these terminally differentiated cells don't live very long. They live hours to days. So, like, if one of these is mutant, like, it doesn't really matter. They're going to die in a day or so, a couple days. Um, and even the progenitors, if it's a normal progenitor, they should only live a few weeks. So, so they were like, what could account for us having a, a relapse uh, if these cells get mutated? Because they're such short-lived. So, and so they asked the question, how do multiple mutations accumulate in a single lineage of cells when these are so short-lived. So, um, and that's what really pointed them back to this idea of the pre-leukemia stem cell. And they hypothesized that maybe what they thought had always been normal stem cells before actually harbored mutations that led to the development of leukemia when it took on more, uh, more mutations. So this was their idea. So hypothesis, so this is, and I just, took this from a, um, from a review article, so this isn't the primary paper, but um, it, it's a lot of uh, bioinformatics and things, which I'm really rotten at. So for me, it just made better to read it conceptually. Um, but you can find this manu the real manuscript, too, if you want to. But I think for our purposes, I was happy just to, like, kind of more teach the concepts rather than hammer through, like, the 
bloody details, so to speak, no pun intended. So, um, so the hypothesis this lab had, so this is this guy here, his name is Ravindra Majetti, um, and the hypothesis, what, the hypothesis is, since most cells in the myeloid differentiation hierarchy are actually short-lived, then leukemogenic mutations must serially accumulate in successive clones of self-renewing hematopoietic stem cells. And so the implication is for this in, in, in individuals with acute myeloid leukemia, um, the residual hematopoietic stem cell compartment will have some totally normal cells, but unfortunately, some will also be these pre-leukemic hematopoietic stem cells that contain some, but not all of the mutations found in the downstream leukemia. Okay? So let's kind of, like, unpackage this and go through this. So how did they look at this? So what they did was they took 19 individuals with newly diagnosed AML. So no treatment yet, nothing. Um, and they took those cells and they did whole exome sequencing of every leukemia. So they could go through and of the leukemia cells, not the stem cells, the leukemia cells. But then what they did was they isolated what they called residual. So to me this was confusing terminology because I thought of residual as like after chemotherapy, but that's not what they meant. They mean like normal hematopoietic stem cells from leukemia stem cells. So that's what that residual means. So I thought, honestly, I don't think it's a good use of terminology, but nobody asked me, so this is what it is in the literature the whole way through. So they could phenotypically, using flow cytometry, isolate the normal or residual hematopoietic stem cells from leukemia stem cells in these patients based on uh, mar this, these markers, TIM3 and CD99. So they could just flow cytometry it, okay? And then what they did was, looking at the normal hematopoietic stem cells, they did targeted sequencing uh, based on the mutations they found in the leukemia cells. So, for example, if you started with one patient and they had, like, five different mutations, they could target, resequence those genes in the normal um, hematopoietic stem cells from that same patient, Okay. And then they could compare what mutations are in the residual hematopoietic stem cells, so to speak, and do those overlap at all with what mutations are in the actual leukemia. So they did all this sequencing, and then they took it one step further. They actually isolated clones, so they wanted to, to speculate back to single cells even. So they isolated hematopoietic stem cell clones and also looked at mutations within, actually within clones. And so this, is, this was their um, study setup, and this is what they found. They found that many of the leukemia mutations, but not all of them, were detected in the residual or normal hematopoietic stem cells. So they found basically what they speculated. And then it's also interesting to note that most of the pre-leukemic mutations, so the ones found in the stem cells, were enriched in genes that basically regulate epigenetic stuff. So it was DNA methylation genes, chromatin modifiers, and also um, genes in the cohesion complex, which I'm not as familiar with the cohesion complex. But in general, it was, um, it was epigenetic type mutations. So I think this picture down here helps a lot, okay? So this is just no normal hematopoietic stem cells. Then what, ha what the speculation is is that not uncommonly, 
probably a hematopoietic stem cell will, will sustain a mutation. This cell, the blue cell, means it has one mutation in it. Um, they call these founder mutations in landscaping genes. So it's founder mutations basically in epigenetic modifying genes. But then as time goes on, so this is like time, lifespan, going from here to here. As time goes on, some of the blue cells are going to sustain a second mutation, okay? That's the green cell. So the green cell now has two mutations. So now you've got some cells that have one mutation, you've got some cells that have two mutations. You have a lot of cells that are still normal. So this person's definitely not sick, okay? But then, as time moves on, occasionally the blue cell with two mutations is going to take one more. Now you've got an orange cell. It's got three mutations, okay? So this is like the, the serial accumulation of mutations. Until finally, maybe you're going to get four or five mutations in a cell. That's this red one here, which is abnormal enough that that can actually give rise to frank leukemia. Okay? And these mutations that happen later, these progressor mutations, these tend to be mutations in, like, receptor tyrosine kinases, like FLT3, for example, um, or in like RAS, for example. So these tend to be the traditional mutations we always thought about like 10 or 15 years ago. Like we'd always be like, oh, it's a FLT3 positive AML patient, you know, so blah, blah, blah. Well, now we know even for the FLT3 positive AML patients, they probably have other mutations in these other genes, okay? So this, um, so this is, uh, so what this does then, he did, he, um, he, he took this one step further because then he looked at patients after chemotherapy. So this is like in remission. And what he found was of six patients that had evidence of a pre-leukemic hematopoietic stem cell diagnosis, four of them still had those pre-leukemic hematopoietic stem cells at the time of remission. So this probably really accounts for why we have so many relapses in AML in spite of the fact that we're really, like, hammering these patients with lots of chemotherapy, okay? So, and then he proposes, um, he proposes, like, five different mechanisms of relapse, but I kind of nailed it down, or kind of weaned it down to three. So when we think about acute myeloid leukemia and why it relapses, one is just the traditional idea that I think makes sense to all of us. It, which is like, oh, we give the patients the drugs, but unfortunately, even after we give the drugs, there's just residual cancer cells around. So, and this for sure happens in cases. So that's just what I call just incomplete eradication of the disease. A second one, though, and this is, beca is becoming more relevant and more identifiable now with whole exome and whole genome sequencing, is that there is a recurrence from a minor subclone. So you have your leukemia with multiple mutations, but there's a few cells that have even one more in there that when you treat the disease, maybe you get rid of all the others, but you've still got this subclone that's pretty robust and can come back even after treatment. So this, this could be relapsed due to the recurrence of a minor subclone. And you can see there um, the disease could come back. But the new idea here from this manuscript really is uh, that leukemia uh, relapses commonly due to a new mutation in an existing pre-leukemic clone. So now the idea is that even after treatment, even after giving maybe even an allo transplant,
that there's a pre-leukemic hematopoietic stem cell that still has this mutation in it that can still outcompete the donor cells that you gave the patient so that it can um, now take on maybe some new mutations, unfortunately, um, and expand, and then you get relapse. So this is really the new kind of paradigm of why AML relapses. So it's this concept of the pre-leukemic hematopoietic stem cell. So whereas like maybe 30 years ago, everyone was focused on getting rid of these cells, then maybe starting about 10 or 15 years ago, everyone was like, how do we get rid of the leukemia stem cell? But now it's kind of like stepped back one more. It's like now people are realizing, ah, we actually have to worry about another one, the pre-leukemia stem cell. So um, that's where, um, this is why this disease is not easy to treat. Okay. So this would be the model here, like even after the patient is treated, and so supposedly even you give them back other stem cells, so that stem cell should replace that bone marrow. Unfortunately, though, this cell may be strong enough to outcompete the other stem cell eventually, may take on a second mutation and a third mutation, and then end up giving you um, relapse disease. So I think as this moves forward, people are going to be able to, with these whole exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing and all this fancy stuff people can do, um, they may be able to figure out why like each person's relapsing. And therefore, they may be able to make treatments more specific for each patient. That would be kind of like a holy grail. Um, that's like this personalized medicine and precision medicine. But right now, um, it's just it's clear that probably even eradicating here isn't good enough, that we've got to probably go back a couple more steps to really um, get rid of this disease. Yeah, I don't know. There's no good way to do it. So, I mean, if if you're lucky, like if you, like I think when it works, it's like and you give an allotransplant, hopefully that, that even if they have a pre-leukemic stem cell, hopefully it's not strong enough so it just kind of dies out. Um, but when that doesn't happen and it comes back, it's hard because the closer you are here, the closer you are to a real normal stem cell. So it's harder to target the more normal something is, the harder to target it is. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, because it, it does have to be something that can target a normal thing while protecting something normal you gave back to them, right? So it's not easy. Like immune therapy or like cars yeah, or, or okay.
possibly. I mean, it's possible. It, it's harder. It's 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 harder to give some. I mean, it's the chemotherapy we give is so robust that it's hard to believe anything can live through it. So these are pretty strong. So, but I think you're right. If you could maybe think of a way that it's like somehow you've got to target a normal thing, which is a little stressful because you you want to target. You always try to find a target that's more in the disease than it, so you have a therapeutic window, so to speak, or a therapeutic index. Um, so somehow you have to find something in this that's normal, but that collaborates with like other oncogenes or something like that, so that um, somehow you have a therapeutic index between your what your disease is going to be and having the norm, something normal come back or having the environment still amenable to permitting normal hematopoiesis. But that's where, but all of these things are like ideas. I mean, I think any ideas worth entertaining and people are going to be thinking about it. So, Okay. So then just one last kind of concept. So this was the whole concept of um, the pre-leukemic hematopoietic stem cell and then, um, then the next question came up, and we'll just go over this pretty quickly, but this is pretty interesting, is people wondered, had the question, how often do individuals without evidence of blood disease, so that look totally normal, like they go to your doctor for your yearly checkup and they draw your blood and they're like, oh, everything looks great, right? They were like wondering, how often do people that are completely clinically normal actually maybe have a clone of mutant hematopoietic stem cells. And like some of this, I'm sure people have had these questions for many, many years, but it's just now that, that the tools are available to try to answer these questions. So, um, so, they, so they did another study, and this is a different group, but um, they all kind of know each other, so they, they all kind of work in the same area. But their hypothesis was that, and sorry I used all these big words, I just kind of wanted to make sure I didn't put something wrong. Um, but basically, somatically acquired single, single nucleotide variants, basically point mutations, okay, or small end deletions or insertions would be detectable in the blood of older individuals bearing no hematologic abnormalities. So even though they look totally normal, their hypothesis was that a certain pop percent of the aging population would be able, we would be able to detect like like point mutations or small insertions and deletions. So what they did was they started with a small group of 17,182 DNA samples from peripheral blood from individuals ranging from 19 to 108 years, and the median age was 58, and they did whole exome sequencing. And what they found was um, they, they had a comparison. They, they basically compared their results from their whole exome sequencing to 160 known genes that are recurrently mutated in myeloid and lymphoid cancer. So they looked at those specifically. But they found that basically um, there were 70 genes that were recurrently mutated from 746 people. So 746 people out of this 17,000 or so had uh, mutations in their hematopoietic stem cells. So it's a reasonable percent. It's not uncommon. And then this is the good news for you guys. So this is like the frequency of being able to detect a population of hematopoietic stem cells with mutation. 
versus age. So what you can see is like really under 30 even, it was really, really uncommon. Even under 50, you know, um, or 40 to 49, because this is zero, this is 10%. So you can see this is like maybe 2%. But then as you start getting, especially like above 60, so this is like 5%, 10% above 70. So it gets much more common as you age, basically. So... Um, so they found, so their hypothesis was true. As individuals age, their chance of having like a clonal hematopoietic stem cell production increases, even though they are look completely healthy. Okay, totally normal blood wise. Um, then just some other things they found: the vast majority of the patients that had this had only one mutation, so that's good. There were a few that had two. Uh, but most of them had only one. Um, and then this is how they kind of prove to themselves that it's a somatic mutation and not a germline mutation. And that's like um, the allele fraction is less than 50%. So if it's a germline mutation, they would think half of everything was um, like mutant. But in this case, they looked at like whether it was nonsense, variants, um, small insertions or deletions, site variants or missense variants, they all were like below 50%. So they said they felt confident that what they had detected were somatic rather than germline. And they did see that the most common mutation found was cytosine dithymine. So I don't know um, if you guys have studied that yet in your other classes, but um, this, is the, this is consistent with the most common mutation seen with aging based on the structure of these um, nucleotides. So that was consistent. And then, and then this, this is the interesting part. So I would say there's good news and bad news. Okay, and that's the way I would put it. Um, for you guys, the good news is a slide a ways back where less than 30, like most people don't have this. So for me, this is the, the better news. But it's not, it doesn't surprise you. They followed patients then forward after they sequenced them. And they said, what patients do develop a hematologic cancer and what patients don't develop a hematologic cancer? And between those patients, how strong, how large is their variant allele fraction? So that meant, like, what percent of their blood have this, uh, this variation in sequence? And it's probably not surprising, the patients that went on to develop a blood cancer had a higher, like, burden of circulating cells that were derived from a mutant hematopoietic stem cell, or basically saying had a higher um, variant allele fraction. So I think this isn't surprising. But the, the surprising part came from, if you, so this is the probability of getting cancer over time, or getting, not just cancer, a blood cancer over time. Um, the absolute risk was actually still pretty small. So it was only 1% per year among individuals that had a variant allele fraction greater than 10%. So even though, even if you were like one of these people here, your chance of getting a blood cancer was only 1% per year, which is higher than you would want. But it's not like, oh, you're going to have cancer in three months for sure, you know. So I think that was pretty surprising to me. I would have thought that that was a much higher number. Um, so the he hematologic malignancy developed only in about 4% of individuals um, with mutations over the course of the study. So you're definitely at higher risk, but not as bad as I would have thought it was. 
This has just gone, I would say they followed some of these like up to seven years. It wasn't real long. I mean, they haven't had these. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'll continue to follow them too. But then this was also a little interesting, and there was one thing I couldn't quite glean from the study. What, what they did find was that um, this is proportion surviving whether you're less than 70 years old or whether than you're, whether, or you're greater than 70 years old, especially if you're greater than 70 years old, if you had one of these populations of cells, of mutant hematopoietic stem cells, your risk of mortality from any cause was higher. So, and that I don't know why. They, they didn't have a reason. And I tried to ferret it out, but I wondered if these people were more frequently smokers, for example. So like they also had mutations because they're smokers, but they also had coronary artery disease more because they had mutations. I don't know. Um, I kind of tried to figure that out and it didn't make sense, but it was kind of surprising that something went together with that where the, from all cause mortality, they had a, a more of a risk of mortality over time. So I guess in general, you don't want one of these mutations, but um, so, anyway, the, 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 so like I, this was what was just published like last December. So uh, just to go over this, so somatic mutations leading to clonal outgrowth of hematopoietic stem cells are pretty frequent in the general population. So just in healthy people, okay, no, you know, no evidence of disease. Um, a median of 18% of the peripheral blood are part of the abnormal clone, okay. Um, and it was like when that number was above 10%, that's when people started having a chance of like developing, they would have like about a 1% chance per year of getting a hematologic malignancy. Um, I didn't go over this, but they also found that this, this clonal hematopoiesis persisted over time. So it's not like you get a wave of it and then it go away. It's like if you got it, it kind of stayed there. Um, again, the most commonly affected genes, so these are epigenetic modifying genes, the DNA methylation gene, TET2, which also affects um, like methylation and modification of cytosine, and ASXL1. So these are really consistent with what was found in the pre-leukemia paper. These tend to be the first hits. Um, increased mortality of individuals with clones. Um, compared to individuals without clones. For, so all-cause mortality was increased in individuals who had clones compared to individuals who didn't. And um, the association of somatic mutations with non-hematologic disease, they were speculating at the end of the manuscript, maybe due to a shared consequence of aging just in general. So kind of a general thing. I wish they would have commented specifically on smoking, and they didn't, but I could find. Um, so... This just kind of summarizes that even when everything's completely normal, it's pretty common as, as one ages that you may have like a mutation in your hematopoietic stem cell. And then the snowman is saying, well, stem cells, snowflakes. Okay. So any questions about that? Yeah. Um, 
No, you no, I see what you're saying because they they're not they don't have the aging thing. Yeah. Like they're still really young and they still get it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the answer is yes, but I don't know what it is. I don't know. I don't know why some kids like an AML, why, and, and this hasn't really gotten applied to pediatric population yet, but probably it will in the next, like, 12 to 18 months. So if you could find why, like, they don't maybe repair their DNA as well or something like that. I didn't know if you had, like, a new No, I don't. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, definitely. Um, sure. Yeah. That's a good answer. Did you hear his answer? <laughs> no, he's saying, like, maybe even though a child is only three or four years old or 10 years old or 12 years old, maybe based on what mom was subjected to, their age is, you know, they're, genetics-wise, they're equal to a 50-year-old because they're, you know, when they were in utero, maybe you know, the environment was such that they have more mutations happen early on. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. That's yeah. Yeah. Good. You guys ask all the easy questions, so. All right, good. Okay, thank you.